Hello and welcome to this special interview with author, activist, and farmer, Leah Penniman. This Farmerama podcast is brought to you by Chelsea Green Publishing and Leah Penniman's Farming While Black. In 1920, there were 925,000 black farmers owning 16 million acres of land, 14% of the U.S. farmland. By 1970, 90% of the farmers and the farmland were lost to the black community. It was almost as if the earth was opening up and swallowing black farmers, wrote scholar Pete Daniel in his book, Dispossession. Leah Penniman's book, Farming While Black, published by Chelsea Green Publishing, invites us all to look at the history and practice of sustainable agriculture with new eyes. In the words of Malcolm X, Revolution is based on land. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. Leah's book is a manifesto and a manual. It includes recipes, wisdom from diasporic African farmers, and practical techniques for setting up a small-scale farm. And it's a call to action, because at its core, it's a celebration of people of colour reclaiming agency in the food system. A key part of this celebration are the songs of the land, and most of the songs featured in this episode are recordings made by Leah with friends on her farm. I have yet to read any book that centers the black farmer as we. Um, the only books that I've read about us uh, really paint, they're requiems, they're requiems for us about how we're disappearing, uh, but they're not about how to reclaim that place of agency in the food system and belonging to the land. So my hope for black farmers is that this is a book that's both an inspiration as well as a practical manual for finding our way home uh, to our rightful place of dignity on the land and my hope for the broader community uh, is that this book is an opportunity to rethink the narrative we have about the place of black people in sustainable agriculture. That's an opportunity to give credit where it's due and to uplift the dignity and the noble contributions of black people uh, to the sustainable farming movement. After midnight on October 4, 1908, 50 hooded white men surrounded the home of a black farmer in Hinkman, Kentucky, and ordered him to come out for a whipping. When David Walker refused and shot at them instead, the mob poured coal oil on his house and set it afire, according to contemporary newspaper accounts. Pleading for mercy, Walker ran out the front door, followed by four screaming children and his wife carrying a baby in her arms. The mob shot them all, wounding three children and killing the others. Walker's oldest son never escaped the burning house. No one was ever charged with the killings, and the surviving children were deprived of the farm their father died defending. Land records show that Walker's two-and-a-half-acre farm was simply folded into the property of a white neighbor. The neighbor soon sold it to another man whose daughter owns the undeveloped land today. The sower went out to sow her seed. A sower went out to sow her seed. 
While farming was initially healing for me, for many African heritage people, it is a triggering and re-traumatizing experience. Almost without exception, when I ask black visitors to Soul Fire Farm what they first associate with farming, they respond, slavery or plantation. As Chris Bolden Newsom says, the field was the scene of the crime. Hundreds of years of enslavement have devastated our sacred connection to land and overshadowed thousands of years of our noble, autonomous farming history. Many of us have confused the terror our ancestors experienced on land with the land herself, naming her the oppressor and running toward paved streets without looking back. We do not stoop, sweat, harvest, or even get dirty because we imagine that would revert us to bondage. And yet we are keenly aware that something is missing, that a gap exists where once there was connection. This generation of black people is becoming known as the returning generation of agrarian people. Our grandparents fled the red clays of Georgia, and we are now cautiously working to make sense of a reconciliation with lands. We somehow know that without the lands, we cannot return to freedom. Farming found me by accident. Uh, I was always a young person who felt deeply connected to nature because the forest was a friend and solace when my peers in school certainly were anything but. Uh, so when it came time to get my first job as a teenager, I saw a flyer for the food project at my mom's church and went for the interview and was lucky enough to land a position where my role was to do things like harvest cilantro and prepare soups for people without houses and folks experiencing domestic violence. And that elegant simplicity of planting and reaping and providing food for the community was a beautiful antidote to all the confusion and identity crises and wondering if I belonged of my teenage years. When I wasn't farming, there was a way that my thoughts and my heart would be swirling in confusion. I would be wondering, you know, is life really worth living? Uh, am I going to be successful? Do I belong? Uh, does anyone care about me? So all of these thoughts would always be consuming me. Um, but as soon as I started farming, as soon as I was in contact with the soil, or even when I was preparing food uh, for people who needed it in the Boston community, that chatter quieted down. There was an undeniable good to the work, an undeniable meaning to the work. And by logical extension, if this thing that my hands could do meant something to the world, then I must also you know, mean something to the world. So it was not just about learning the skills of farming, but it was very much about healing my sense of, of purpose and worth uh, as a teen. I can feel my heartbeat beating to the rhythm of the freedom song. If I say yes to the beat in me, I can set my spirit free. I can feel my heartbeat beating to the rhythm of the freedom song. If I say yes to the beat in me, I can set my spirit free. Leah has been farming for over 20 years, and she's moved through a lot of ups and downs in that time. She now lives and works at Soulfire Farm, a place with community at its core. Soulfire Farm also found us in many ways. Uh, we were living then in the south end of Albany, which is classified as a food desert by the United States Department of Agriculture, which means that it's a high poverty census tract and also a place where there aren't grocery stores or farmers markets. 
So my partner Jonah and I were living there with our very young children. Uh, Nishima was two and Emmett was a newborn. And despite our years of farming experience and our education privilege, we found it very difficult to find the food we needed to give our children uh, the right kind of nourishment. And so eventually we joined a farm share CSA that cost more than our rent for us and it was over two miles away. So without a car, that meant you know, walking up a hill with the newborn on the back and the two-year-old in the stroller and then piling all these vegetables on top of the two-year-old and then going back and preparing the food. And so when our neighbors found out that we knew how to farm, they really encouraged us to create a farm for the people, meaning to create a farm that would focus on getting fresh vegetables and food to our neighbors and to folks who were excluded from the benefits of the food system. You know, we always knew we wanted to have a farm one day, but that was a moment of accountability and mission formation for us. So in speaking with our neighbors in the south end of Albany, it was revealed that there are really two main barriers to accessing good food. And believe it or not, it has nothing to do with education. It has nothing to do with desire to eat good food. The two barriers are transportation and money. So when we designed our farm share CSA, we decided to deliver the vegetables right to people's doorstep. So folks didn't have to have a car or go somewhere out of their neighborhood to get the food. That box shows up every Wednesday right where they tell us to leave it. And to address the issue of money while still maintaining financial viability as a farm, which is really important to us, we adopted a sliding scale model, which means that if you have more, you pay more. If you have less, you pay less. So people choose the amount that they can afford for their vegetables, eggs, sprout, chicken meats, and we don't you know, check anybody's paperwork. It's all based on the honor system, but we found that folks are very generous, so people tend to contribute as much as they possibly can, and we have a number of folks in the community who contribute toward what we call solidarity shares. So that's when a family pays the full cost um, of a season-long share for someone who really can't pay anything at all and we give away those solidarity shares to refugees, immigrants, and folks impacted by incarceration and criminal injustice in our community. And we have about 15 people right now who get completely free uh, shares and deliveries. Thank you for this land. 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 This healing, this healing, this healing land. This healing, this healing, this healing land. So even though we drive through some wealthier neighborhoods, uh, we do not stop there to drop off the boxes. We only do doorstep delivery in zip codes that are USDA food deserts. And we require that folks who are middle and high income get their boxes from those low income neighborhoods. First of all, because they can, you know, so we, it's fair for us to expect that those with resource use their resource. But also it becomes an awakening moment because for a lot of these higher income families, they don't have the opportunity to visit neighborhoods that experience economic uh, disadvantage. And so it's a reminder about that dichotomy that exists in society and hopefully a catalyst for both compassion and action. The idea of food deserts is well known, but Leah prefers a different term. 
Food apartheid is a term that was taught to me by my mentor, Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm. It refers to the fact that the system we have right now, which relegates certain people to food opulence and others to food scarcity, really isn't metaphorically a desert because a desert is a natural phenomena. It's a biodiversity rich biome. It's has a place in the earth, a noble place, whereas apartheid is a human created system of segregation. And that's really what we have where your zip code, which is very much determined by a legacy of redlining and racist zoning policies in turn determines your access to food. And there's nothing natural about that. It's a human created system um, and it can be a system that we dismantle and redesign so that there truly is equity and access for all people. As a young farmer, the only historical information I had about sustainable agriculture was centering white folks and particularly men. So I knew about Elliot Coleman and John Jevons and the Nearings, but I had no idea about the contributions of Cleopatra or Fannie Lou Hamer, or Booker T. Watley or George Washington Carver. And so it was so essential for me as part of reclaiming our belonging in the story to do the anthropological research about our contributions. Um, so for example, uh, Dr. George Washington Carver of Tuskegee Institute uh, was one of the founders of regenerative agriculture, which is also known as organic agriculture. He taught his students that they should use the peanuts and other leguminous crops in a rotation with more extractive crops as a way of restoring nitrogen to the soil. Um, he also taught diversified horticulture, uh, composting, mulching, uh, the use of wild crafting and wild foraging for livestock. And so he was just well beyond his time in terms of restoring and honoring indigenous ways of farming in a commercial agricultural context. George Washington Carver's contribution to the sustainable agriculture movement is just one of many examples that Leah refers to as uplift stories. Farming While Black is the story of a whole community being called into action. Leah talks about building a movement and being an effective leader, and she creates a picture of a global network of farmers working to increase farmland stewardship by people of colour. A vital part of this is Soulfire Farms' education programme, the Black Latinx Farmers Immersion Programme. So the idea with BLFI, which we call it for short, is that about 20 folks from all across the United States and sometimes from other countries come to live and learn together on the farm for about a week. It's a 50 hour training program. And in that time, not only do we learn all these concrete farming skills, like how do you measure cation exchange capacity and what's it good for in the soil through you know, chicken processing and greenhouse management, marketing, business planning. So it's a, it's a really intensive farm training program. And at the same time, it's a container for healing from the trauma of centuries of land-based oppression. So we use a lot of African traditional healing modalities like song and dance, herbal baths, storytelling, and deep listening in order to uproot that trauma that's taken hold that makes us sometimes believe that we don't belong in a life on land. So we're really building community, we're building our spirits, and we're also building our skills. And once folks graduate from BLFI, they become part of our family, or sometimes we call ourselves our family, forever and ever. And so there's ongoing mentorship, 
opportunities to connect to resources, grants, loans, um, as well as a speakers collective where you know folks can be part of spreading the message around uh, Black agrarianism. So it's been very exciting. We've had over 500 people go through the program. Almost everyone is continuing to grow food for their community after graduating from BLFI. And it has a waiting list of hundreds of people every year. And that's been so important to me because one of the myths that I was told about black farmers is that we're not interested, right? We left the red clays of Georgia, moved to the urban streets of the north for a better life and never looked back. And black folks just aren't interested in being on the land. But this anecdotal evidence really flies in the face of that myth. The fact that so many people are lining up over the years to take this program tells me that we really are in the returning generation of Black agrarianism. Yabisi Asili is one of the participants in the youth program. It was just so beautiful and really, really healing. And being around so many people of color my age, there was this big fire and we were singing like songs and whatnot and playing African drums. And we all had, we all had these blankets. I remember snuggling with my god siblings and just looking out at the stars was in a big, big field and seeing shooting stars go by and just feeling really, really appreciated and really present. We would go out and they'd show us different techniques of when farming and we'd plant seeds and whatnot and we'd harvest vegetables. And then we would go and we'd have to cook lunch and we'd use the produce that we had picked and made lunch from that. And like learned about like traditional African foods or Latinx foods. Like I used to live in a food desert myself. I used to live in downtown Albany, which is like a more poor community. It's made me, it's probably made up of people of color. They said after going to this camp, they start to realize that farming is more about connecting with like your heritage, like your ancestry and like these sacred traditions. It's more than just harvesting vegetables so you can eat them. It's like, it's very, it's a very, very sacred practice that our ancestors have been doing for many generations. So my peers who, it depends, it's actually very much race oriented, I feel. So my white peers would say that it's just, it's, you know, it's like farming and they're not really interested. I feel like it's hard to tell them like about like the rites of passage and whatnot and the more ancestral part of the farming experience. But some of my friends who are of color and are either Latinx or or African, which I am both, um, they are really, like, I feel like they're more receptive, they're more interested in this experience of farming and whatnot and they want to know more about it and they want to know more about like their traditions and they, I think they're way more curious about it and they're more intrigued in a lot of ways. Which I find interesting. Yeah, learning more about farming and that your tradition is something that as a young age and as you become a youth is very important in like your academic career and discovering your identity in general. And I'd say, yeah, just learn more about your heritage and like learn more about being with the land and try, just try farming whether or not you don't like you like it. I think it's important to try farming and, if, and even if you don't like farming, being out in nature, it gives you the sense of connection. That's very important. So high, like an eagle in the sky. And when I come back home, I want to spread my wings and fly. Pachamama, I'm coming home to the place where I belong. Pachamama, I'm coming.
so this was a few years back. We had a group of teens out to the farm, and as is typical, many of them did not want to get out of the van because they were afraid of the bugs and the sunshine and the dirt and all the unfamiliarity and all the scary stories told about rural spaces. So the fear was legitimate. Dijor was one of these young people. And when we did eventually coax Dijor out of the van, he had his hood up and his earbuds in. He did not want to engage with our cheesy opening circle where we had everyone select an element in nature that represented them and share out. He just wasn't having any part of that. And when we went on the tour, Dijor was so afraid of getting his sneakers dirty that he acquiesced and decided to come along and take off his shoes in order to you know, preserve the sneakers, preserve the beautiful whites of his new kicks. And he came with us and had this most powerful experience uh, while following along. He said when we finished up the tour that his grandmother visited him through the soles of his bare feet when they were in contact with the earth, that she entered through his feet up into his heart and reminded him of a time when she was still alive, when he was young and they gardened together, and she would place worms and insects and elements of nature into his bare hands. And at that time, he wasn't afraid. So he remembered a time of not being afraid of nature, of really belonging, and a time of being connected to his mother and to the earth. So he shed some tears in our closing circle sharing this, and that gave permission for the other young people to be in their vulnerability and also share memories of their grandparents and relatives and times of feeling connected. And these youth were actually part of a youth filming program and ended up creating a documentary in honor of their grandmothers, which was uh, one of the most touching and beautiful experiences that, that I had uh, mentoring young people at the farm. Ibolele, Ibolele, oh, Ibolele, Ibolele, oh, Ibolele, la tibonit gramum pajweo, Ibolele, la tibonit gramum pajweo, Ibolele, Ibolele, oh, Ibolele. Traditions and rituals are core to Leah's way of farming. For her, spirituality is an integral part of everyday activities on the farm, and that includes singing. Most of the songs you've heard in this episode were sung at Soulfire Farm by Leah and her friends. So yeah, there were some elders of mine in Ghana who were incredulous to know that many farmers in the United States do not integrate any type of rituals or reverence or song or dance into their um, the cycle of their year. They just couldn't imagine how crops would spring forth from the earth with such disrespect. And so that's the framework that I'm coming with. 
And I'm, I'm certainly a learner. There's times when I forget and, and revert to this colonized perspective of just output, output, output. But uh, we do have uh, festivals that bookend the year. So in the fall, the Harvest Festival for Haitian people is called Manje Yam, the eating of the new yams. Uh, for us, it's sweet potatoes <laughs> because the yams don't grow in our climate. Uh, there's so many things I love about this, this festival and a number of uh, family and friends do come over and enjoy the harvest with us. But the center piece of the ritual is this metaphorical journey back to Guinea. Guinea is Africa, is the land of the ancestors and the source of good character. So we put banana leaves out all over the floor and roll from west to east on the banana leaves with east representing Guinea, uh, which is across the Atlantic Ocean to the east from us. And when we arrive at this, this location, which is in our living room, but metaphorically in the land of our ancestors, we receive spiritual instructions and spiritual renewal. And then we roll back across the banana leaves back west to home. Um, and this is deeply meaningful. It's also super fun. If you can imagine a whole bunch of, you know, five to nine year olds rolling all over banana leaves and getting tangled up in them and bumping into each other. Um, it's really delightful. Um, and then after that ritual, we get to enjoy the, the feast and we eat yams and we also eat fish to represent the harvest of the sea as well as the harvest of the land. There is no culture devoid of planting and harvest rituals. And I think one of the myths of white supremacy is to erase the indigenous cultural heritage of all of us. So even folks from the UK, folks from Europe, folks with white skin, um, if you reach back, uh, you know, pre-Roman, pre-Greco empire, you will see that there's indigenous ways of being that are very connected to the earth. And it might take uh, talking to our great-grandparents, it might take reading some books, uh, but I think it's really important for us to be rooted in our own cultural traditions. It can be so easy to just borrow from others. You know, the Manje Yam Festival was not passed down to me. When my grandparents came from Haiti to the United States, they were really keen on assimilating and so didn't teach their children French or Creole, didn't even cook a lot of the traditional foods. Um, so it took my sister and I, you know, going back to Haiti and learning from elders about about what those traditions were that we had lost and then reviving them. And that's something I really encourage all of us to do. I think it also makes a lot of sense for us to find rituals uh, that come from our own hearts and minds. And so it can be really simple. It can just be um, singing a song of thanks or, you know, taking the time to touch the earth in a reverent way before putting seed. It doesn't have to be elaborate and complicated. It's about that pause that really recognizes the sanctity and sovereignty of the moment of planting and the moment of harvest. Farming can be repetitive, you know, harvesting all day, weeding all day. And so singing brings joy and connection. I think it reminds us that the work we're doing isn't just material and helps us transcend into a place of heart and spirit. And a lot of the songs that we sing intersect with what we're talking about before around spirituality and praise. These are songs of thanks for our breath and for the majesty of the soil and the fecundity of the water. 
Um, so in singing, I think we, we connect ourselves to the deeper meaning of the work that we're doing. The ocean is the beginning of the world. The ocean is the beginning of the world. All life comes from the sea. I think I would be remiss not to mention uh, Black Indigenous solidarity in this narrative. Um, and one story really illustrates that for me. Um, the crop that is arguably most sacred to the Haitian people, to my ancestors, is the Jumu pumpkin. And that's because this pumpkin is so delicious and the white French enslavers would not allow us to taste it during the period of enslavement. So after our successful revolution in 1804, the celebration was to make the soup jumu, this, this amazing, delicious uh, soup that represents both, both freedom um, and also the justice and liberation. So, but this pumpkin was gifted to us by the Taino people, by indigenous people. And in exchange, black people gave the Taino folks one of our special beans, uh, which is the black-eyed pea. And that alliance has woven itself throughout history. We've had our ups and downs in terms of really um, being in solidarity with each other because it is a colonial project to divide Black and Indigenous people from each other. Uh, but right now we're in a period, a really hopeful period, of again building solidarity and alliances. And so we're working with a number of Indigenous communities across the Northeast of the United States to form a land trust together. And that land trust would receive uh, reparations gifts and make them available to black indigenous growers and earth stewards um, as a way of regaining some of the land that was stolen from us during the centuries of settler colonialism. This has been just a small taster of farming while black. Before we said goodbye, we asked Leah if there was anything she wanted to add. My message to all of us who tend the land is not to get discouraged by the corporate attempts to take over our food system. Smallholders still produce 70% of the world's food. Uh, we are the past and we also are the future of feeding the entire planet in a way that doesn't destroy our ecological base. Uh, so just keep at it. Uh, we're part of the long view of history and we're already winning even on days when we can't feel it. Farming while black is a powerful reminder that farming is inherently and inevitably political and spiritual. It's a book that compels you to acknowledge the contribution of people of color to regenerative agriculture over many centuries. And it forces you to reconsider the act of farming and the role of farmers in society. It's a story of one black woman embracing the land and activating a whole community to do the same. Leah tells the wisdom of her ancestors, fills you with practical tips for beginner farmers, encourages you to sing and dance and celebrate your roots, to work together to heal hundreds of years of trauma, and she paves the way for people of color to reclaim their rightful place of dignified agency in the food system. The book is at once fiercely political, deeply practical, and unashamedly spiritual, because as Leah shows us, Farming is all of those things. 
When you were born, you cried, and the world rejoiced. Live your life so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. When you were born, you cried, and the world rejoiced. Live your life so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. This podcast was brought to you by Chelsea Green Publishing, the leading publisher of books on sustainable food and farming, including Farming While Black by Leah Penniman. To get this book and discover more great titles, visit chelseagreen.com. A Sower Went Out to Sow Her Seeds was sung by Toshi Reagan. It's taken from the opera she co-wrote with her mother called Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower based on the book of the same name. This show was made by Katie Revel, Joe Barrett, and myself, Abby Rose. Thanks to Leah Penniman for sharing her recordings of Field Songs, and Yubisi Asili for sharing his experiences. Community support is provided by Annie Landless and Eliza Jenkins. Toodaloo!